discouragement. Do I need to define that word? We all know it in various ways. It's amazing who can cause discouragement for our hearts. Situations, circumstances, life difficulties, illnesses. Have you noticed that sometimes even the people we love the most are the cause of our discouragement? Sometimes the words of a spouse may be some of the deepest wounds that can cause us discouragement. Sometimes the very people we love the most cause us the deepest discouragement. And none of us are somehow protected from being discouraged. Even if you're a Christian, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that somehow the Lord will protect you from discouragement. Do you know that even pastors get discouraged? And I'm not just talking about myself, although I would definitely be in that category too. But even the greatest of pastors can be discouraged. Did you know that Charles Spurgeon has fought with discouragement and even depression? In one of the the books that describes the discouragement and depression that Charles Spurgeon went through, a book called Spurgeon Sorrows. This book starts with this quote, and I thought I would read it to you this morning. Here's what Charles Spurgeon once said. The road to sorrow has been well trodden. It is the regular sheep track to heaven, and all the flock of God have had to pass along it. Oh, dear friends, discouragement and even greater intensities of that discouragement, even depression, is part of what even the saints of God, even though those who follow the Lord Jesus, even those who might have no reason to be discouraged, nevertheless are discouraged. So this morning, the passage we are going to look at speaks to this experience of the discouragement of God's people. Would you open God's Word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 49? We'll be reading from verse 14 in chapter 49 all the way to chapter 50, verse 11. If you are new to our congregation, if you're visiting with us, we're so delighted that you're with us. We encourage you to grab a Bible providing the chairs in front of you if you didn't bring your Bible with you and open God's Word to page number 610, 610 in the Pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to grab one of our Pew Bibles and take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it, to own it, and to read it. If you have any questions about it, we'd love to meet with you and talk to you about it. This morning, we are working through our, the book of Isaiah, and we have talked last week about the first part of the chapter, chapter 49. Today, we're finishing chapter 49 and moving on to chapter 50. Here's God's word for us this morning. Isaiah 49:14. But Zion said, The Lord has forgotten me, has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, 
yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. And you will say in your heart, Who has borne these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dried up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish sting for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. 
Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? Prayer asking God to speak to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, as we hear your word, we confess that we need your spirit to illumine our hearts and minds. Help us, O Lord, to see and hear what you declared to your people when they have gone through a time of deep, deep discouragement. And Father, help us to learn the lessons you have taught them. And may those lessons ring true in our hearts today so that we may trust in you in our times of need. We pray that you would speak to our hearts so that Christ would be exalted. We pray that you do so through the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Discouragement. We began looking at this theme last week as we considered from last week the reality that even the servant of the Lord has gone through times and moments and experiences of discouragement. And we have seen how the servant of the Lord looked at the Results that he was to experience immediately in his ministry, and those results were so small, so few. And it looked like if, if he just looked at what he expected from the Lord in his immediate experience, that, that he has failed. That was his experience. And yet the Lord encouraged him, and the Lord gave him reasons to continue to, to plow ahead, to trust in the Lord, and the servant did trust in the Lord. And, the, and this, the, the passage that we've read about the servant of the Lord led to a place where, the, where God told him that he will make all creation rejoice at the salvation that God will bring through the servant to the ends of the earth. In our text today, the passage takes us not only to the servant who was discouraged, but takes us to the people of God who were discouraged. In our, past, in our text today, we get to read that Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. Verse 14, My Lord has forgotten me. These words reveal how Israel explained the cause of their exile. They looked at their pitiful situation, at their exile, and they concluded that it was God's fault, that God had forsaken his people and had forgotten them. This accusation is not a new accusation that the people of God brought. They, they brought it earlier in chapter 40, verse 27, where God exposed their complaining hearts. And in chapter 40, God said, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? 
This is what God exposed in their hearts in chapter 40. And now we're, we're nine chapters later, after God has spoken them, to them uh, over and over again, the, the kind of plans he has to, to bring them comfort and consolation. And here we are, nine chapters later, and the discouragement persists. The accusation is still there. It's amazing, dear friends, how powerful discouragement is in its ability to linger on in our hearts, even after God has revealed His truth to us. It's amazing how discouragement finds a way to stick around. And no matter what, what we might hear, it's as if we want to hold on to it for one reason or another. And this morning we see in this passage that God's people continue to hold on to their discouragement. What makes this complaint or this discouragement even more painful is that in the previous verse, verse 13, God called all creation to sing for joy. God said in verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on his afflicted. This is a context. While all creation was called by God to sing because of God's compassion for his people. Verse 14 reminds us how Israel responded. They responded with complaining and accusation. Friends, is it possible that sometimes our own hearts respond with complaining towards God when we should respond with joy? Accusations or complaining grow in us, especially in times when God does not meet our expectations. When we go through difficult experiences, our hearts can easily give in to the conclusion that perhaps God has abandoned us or forgotten us. Sometimes people may even say those things. Other times we may not hear ourselves say those things, but deep down our hearts have quietly and subtly embraced some versions of those truths without us realizing. So this morning we want to look at four points and, and, and see how God speaks directly to the discouragement of the hearts of His own people. And as we look through these four points, we will see not only God's reminders of who He is, we will see God exposing some of the, the deeper problems of the heart, and then God, we will see God's ultimate solution for their discouragement, and then we will be faced with a choice. So let's look at these four points this morning. The first one is remember God's commitment. Remember God's commitment. Based on verse 14, here, listen how God responds to the discouragement and the, the complaining of his people. He gives them several comforting truths, and he gives these truths in pictures. We're going to see a few pictures in this chapter. The first picture declares that God's commitment is stronger than any human love. The first picture that we're going to see declares that God's commitment is stronger than any human love. To make this point, God gives an image of a mother with a young infant who's still nursing. 
Look at verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? This is one of the strongest of human loves, a mother's love and compassion for her children. And not only for her children who may have grown up, but for her children who are in, in a nursing stage. Even this, Isaiah says, God says, even this, which is a, perhaps the strongest of the, of the human loves, the love of a mother for her infant child, even this, God says, even these may forget. In other words, it is true that even the highest form of human love may still fail. And we can just spend some time on this experience alone. There's a reason why we have orphanages. There's a reason why we have even uh, mothers who are giving away their children. And even, even the strongest of the human loves can still fail. And for any of us this morning, you may have a different picture in your mind. What is the strongest of human loves? If, you, if you're a young person, you think that the, the love between, uh, be, that you might have for another person in a, in a marital relationship might be the strongest of human loves. Oh, friends, even they can fail. Whichever picture you have in your mind of the strongest of the human loves, the point is, it can fail. God says, yet I will not forget you. As high as the love of a mother is towards her infant, God says his love for his people is even greater. If human love can fail at times, God's love towards his people never fails. In verse 16, God gives another evidence, another picture to show that he will not forget his people. God says in verse 16, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. By this, God shows that his love for his people is not only the strongest, but it's permanent. It is sealed forever. But there's something else about this picture where God engraves. He says he's engraving his people. Notice where does he engrave his people? On his hands. Now we should not think of God as having a physical body with hands. This is a picture. But he's engraving his people on his hands so that every time he does something, he is reminded of his people. It's like having a tattoo on your hand. Every time you, you do something with your hands, you are reminded of what's happening there. It's the same way here. God wants to paint a picture in, on the minds of, of his people that every time God is doing something, his people are engraved on his hands so that he always has his people before his eyes. Friends, God is giving us this picture to, to give us a, a, a reminder and a truth that we have no foundation to accuse God that somehow he has abandoned his people or forgotten his people. If the first picture of a mother forgetting or, 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 or not loving the, the child of, of her nursing season uh, is, is responded with this picture of, of God never abandoning his people, the second picture shows that God is not forgetting his people. Both pictures respond to the accusation that, God, that the people of God brought against him. The next picture we see is that God shows that his commitment to restore 
is beyond any human explanation. If the first two pictures spoke about God's commitment being stronger than any human love, the, the, the next picture is a picture that shows that God's commitment to restore is beyond any human explanation. We see this in verses 17 through 21. God describes the discouragement of his people by continuing the picture of a mother. This time, God illustrates his people through a mother who has lost her children. She has become bereaved. But she's not only bereaved, she's also barren. So that humanly speaking, she cannot have any more children. This is how Israel described herself in verse 21. I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. Humanly speaking, for such a woman, there was no hope left. Yet God promises that this bereaved and barren woman will still have children. And not only will she have children again, but the number of her children will be so great that they will have no room in the land. That these children will come and, and complain and say that, they will, that, that the place is too small. And when she sees, when this woman sees a great number of her children coming to her, she will have no explanation of how it happened. Look at verse 21. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Do you see this woman's lack of explanation? She's seeing results, and the results are so abundant, she has no category. She has no way to explain how she got out of her pitiful state into this place of, of abundant restoration. We see here not only God's ability to restore, but we see here God's, that God's restoration is so abundant that the people of God will have no human explanation for their restoration. Friends, the fact that, that she will have no explanation shows that the restoration she experienced was not caused by any of her strength. It was not caused by any of her strategies. If anything, she had become utterly hopeless. And now she is speechless in explaining it away. Friends, that is when God often shows up. When we become utterly hopeless in ourselves. Then God intervenes. And he shows up in a way that is, it is evident that only the Lord could have done it. And indeed, verse 22 reveals that God is the one who caused this restoration to take place. The reason why God will bring such a change is described in verse 23. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Waiting on the Lord. If you've been with us through the book of Isaiah, waiting on the Lord has been the solution that God has tried to call his people it's been the solution that God tried to lead his people to, to do, to wait on him rather than wait on themselves, rather than relying on other gods, rather than relying on their hopes, rather than relying on their timeline. God has called his people to rely and to wait on him. And faith in God is lived out in our waiting on the Lord. There is no true faith in the Lord if we are not willing to wait on him. Well, in this text, God shows that waiting on the Lord will not 
disappoint us. Not only will it not disappoint us, waiting on the Lord will leave us with no explanation how the Lord will do the restoration. It'll be so abundant, so magnificent. The life that practices waiting on the Lord, dear friends, will get to see the power of God working in unexpected ways. Now, it's true that those unexpected ways will less likely come on our timeline. It's true that the waiting on the Lord will come on the Lord's timeline. But trust in this, that we will have no human explanation for it. It will be so abundant. God's commitment not only is beyond any ability to explain, but God's commitment to restore also will personally involve God in the rescuing process. God's commitment to restore will personally involve God in the rescuing process. Israel had another discouragement. Not only did Israel accuse God of uh, having been abandoned by God and having been forgotten by God, in verse 24, there is another complaint or another form of the complaint. Is redemption really possible? And this complaint shows up in the following way. Verse 24, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? This is a question that, that sort of God exposes that most likely was on the hearts of his own people. In other words, is it possible that real change, that real rescue, that real restoration can take place? When you look at the enemies, when you look at the captors, when you look at how strong they are, when you look at how hopeless the situation is, is real restoration really possible? And God's answer in verse 25 and 26 are beautiful. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. Why? doesn't say because of you. Notice what it says. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. In other words, God promises to be personally involved in the fight to redeem God's people. Friends, for us today, the greatest bondage that we have, that we have facing us, is sin and death. Yes, I know we have other we have other enemies that face us that perhaps might be more discouraging to us in the immediate run. We might have situations. We might have illnesses. We might have things that are, that are bothering us right now. But friends, as great as those enemies may seem to you, there is a greater enemy that we all face that is sin and eventually death. And God pledged to fight against both of our greatest of enemies and God contended with these by sending his own son to be the one who takes upon himself our sins and to taste death for us to taste that very experience that was caused by our sin Jesus was crucified on a cross he was willing to face our adversary three days later God raised him from the dead, proving that Jesus has conquered death and paid the sin 
the penalty for sin that we deserved so that all those who turn to God, all those who ask God to save them, are rescued from the power of sin and death. Friend, if you are not a Christian, you're visiting us with, with us this morning. We're so glad that you're here. One of the greatest news that we can declare to you, one of the greatest news that we can, that we can declare every Sunday when we gather, is that God has committed to be personally involved in defending His people from their greatest enemy, and that is sin and death. And He has done it. He has sent Jesus to be the one who fights our battle for us so that all those who would turn to God, all those who would turn away from their sin, all those who would turn away from their rebellion would be rescued by God, saved, restored to God, and restored unto them a life everlasting that we could never earn by ourselves. Friends, if you'd like to know more about this great news that we call the gospel, if you'd like to know more what it means to respond to God, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Now, for those of us who are Christians, sometimes in the battle with our sinful actions or thoughts, sometimes we may feel discouraged and hopeless in the fight with sin. We may feel like the enemy is too big for us to overcome. Perhaps there's a particular addiction that you're struggling with. Perhaps there's a particular sin pattern. And you, you have tried and tried and you feel hopeless Friends, let this passage encourage us and encourage you that God has promised to be personally involved in fighting off the enemies of our hearts. We are not alone in this battle. So far in this passage, God has challenged His people to consider, uh, to consider God's commitment, to remember God's commitment. But then as, as this passage goes on in chapter 50, God challenges His people to consider the real problem. Consider the real problem as God's people deal with their discouraging situation, which was, to say that they were discouraged is an understatement. They were exiled. They were taken out. They were, they were hopeless. As God deals with the, with, their, with the discouragement and the hopelessness of, their, of His people, there's one thing God wants them to, to get clear on. Why did God send Israel into exile? If God's love is stronger than any human love, if God is able to fight against the enemies of His people, then why is Israel exiled? Doesn't the exile show that God's love has failed? And the answer is a very clear no. And we see this answer in, verses, um, in chapter 50, verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? The implied answer here is, there's no such certificate of divorce. God has not divorced His people. God did send His people away into exile. That is true. God did send Israel away into exile. But, it was, but this discipline that God used did not mean that He broke His relationship with His people. The next question God brings up has a different scenario, a scenario that is very, uh, very different for us to hear. In the old ancient times, if you went to the, the bank, a creditor, to buy a loan, to get a loan, one of the deposits that ultimately you had to put up was your own family. So that if you were not able to pay off the loan, what it meant was that your family 
got to be sold into the service of the creditors. That was an ancient practice. We, we don't practice that today. So praise God, we don't have that problem today. But that was what's going on. So when God asked this question, next, the next question he asked in verse 1, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? He, this, is a, this is a scenario. And, and the end, expected answer is, there's no creditor. God did not sell his people into exile to gain some profit from them. The reason why God sold his people into exile, and that is true, Eve says, the reason why I've sold you, the reason why you were sold into exile, is because of your sin. Verse 1, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Oh, friends, how easy, how easy it is for us to blame others when things don't go well with us. Whether we blame God or whether we blame other people, just like the people of Israel, we often fail to look at ourselves and consider the heart issues of our own hearts. God wants us to turn our attention away from blaming God or others and see how our own sin is exposed in the times of trials and difficulties. Now, not all suffering is caused directly by our own sinning. I don't want you to walk away and feel like every trial you may experience has a direct correlation to a particular sin that you may have, a call, may have, may have a transgressed. There are times when the Lord allows us to go through moments of suffering to refine us. And it's not because we have sinned directly. Uh, next week, by God's grace, Pastor Taylor will begin preaching on 1 Peter, a letter that speaks and addresses a theme of suffering. And it's not necessarily because of a particular sin that we have caused. And yet, even in the moments of suffering, when we may have not sinned directly, the Lord can refine us. The Lord can expose perhaps sinful ways in which we do tend to respond to suffering. The Lord can refine us by giving us endurance. And I encourage you to join us in the next few weeks as Pastor Terry will be taking us through the letter of 1 Peter um, over the next few weeks. But in our text, God makes it clear that the reason why Israel was suffering, the reason why they were suffering exile, was their own sin. And sadly, they did not even consider examining it. They did not even think, is there something the Lord is challenging in me through this difficult time? One of the reasons we included in our service today a prayer of confession of sin is to be a reminder that the ultimate root of all our problems, the ultimate root of all our problems is our sin. And we want to deal with our sin regularly. We want to deal with our sin openly. Friends, we want to deal with our sin even corporately. To confess it and to ask God for the grace to forsake it. And friends, let such times of even corporate prayer of confession, let such times encourage you to examine your heart regularly, not only when we're gathered together, but also when we're scattered in your own time of quiet prayer. Up to now, God has addressed the fears and the complaints that grew out of their discouragement. God reminded them of his commitment to them. God also 
challenge them to consider the real problem that might be going on in the heart. Thirdly, the third point we see this morning is God's ultimate solution to discouragement. God's ultimate solution to discouragement. You know what it is? It's not even his promises, although though they are a wonderful resource for our discouragement. God's ultimate solution for our discouragement is his servant. It's a servant of the Lord. And this is what we see in chapter 50, verse 4 through 11. The servant of the Lord begins speaking again. We were introduced to him in chapter 42. We saw him again in chapter 49. And now we see him for the third time, not the last time, but for the third time, speaking to his people. And notice when he begins speaking again, notice what is it that he speaks first about. It's his tongue. Again, his tongue. In the previous speech he gave us in chapter 49, he began speaking about himself, and there too he spoke first about his tongue. And in that chapter, uh, his tongue was presented like a sharp sword. Here, he speaks again about his tongue, but now the aim of his tongue is to sustain the weary. Look at verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Friends, what a beautiful picture. The tongue that the servant has, the tongue that he receives from the Lord, is aimed not only to cut and to fight battles as a sword does, but also to sustain the weary. Another way to translate this phrase is to help with words him that is exhausted. Now, friends, there's something both encouraging and potentially discouraging in this promise. I'm going to start with the discouraging part. Sometimes when you're exhausted or discouraged, words are the last thing you need. It feels like no matter what can someone say to you, Give me something else. I've heard enough. You know what I'm talking about? So in some way, when I look at these verses, at these words, and I say, Lord, really? This is what you have for your discouraged people? Words? We might feel discouraged just about that. And yet, here's what the Lord says. Yes! It's the words of my servant. They, I have given those to him so that through those words, he might sustain the weary. Oh, friends, God's solution to our discouragement is his servant speaking. It's not just human words. It's the words of the servant of the Lord speaking. Friend, if you are discouraged, how often do you retreat to God's word to find encouragement and comfort in His Word. How many go there to meditate on who God is, on our need of Him? Or do you find in you a quiet suspicion that God's Word, as great as it is, is not enough to deal with your discouragement? Be honest. It's true that sometimes we get tired of hearing cliché answers. 
even though or even when those cliche answers might come from the Bible itself. Be honest with yourself. We might feel discouraged even about that. We might know God's word mentally and think we already know it, and yet we don't experience strength that comes from his word. And some of us might feel hopeless because the intellectual knowledge that we have of God's word proves to be insufficient. Have you been there? Have you experienced that? Knowing God, knowing his word just intellectually, without challenging the heart to embrace it, does not profit us much. Friends, you come to God and to his word with an open heart to be strengthened by the word of the Lord, to allow the word to challenge your assumptions, to expose perhaps a hidden sinful attitude, to correct perhaps a, a self-centered reliance, to embrace afresh the promise of God who comes to us through his word. You come to God knowing that you know it all, that you've heard it, if you come with that kind of attitude, I guarantee you God's word will not be profitable to you. But if you come to God's word with that kind of desire to let God's word take away a little stone that has been there and lying underneath it, some sinful assumptions, some sinful promises, some, some self-centered hopes. If you allow God's word to examine everything, oh friends, the word of the Lord can sustain the weary. The next characteristic we see of the, of the servant of the Lord is that he himself speaks not only about his tongue, he speaks about his, his ear. Notice what he says by, about his ear. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The servant here portrays himself and portrays his attitude of daily attentiveness to God's word of daily wanting to be taught by God. Hence, this is the servant of the Lord speaking. He says that he has an attitude of attentiveness that he pursues daily. Not just once a week when we gather church. Not just in Sunday school. Not just in a home group. The servant of the Lord is awakened daily and he has his attitude of attentiveness on a daily basis. The servant of the Lord is opposite of Israel's attitude. Israel's hearing in chapter 48 and 49 was, um, was exposed as being closed. Israel had an attitude of, of know it all. He thought he doesn't need to hear anything new from the Lord. Here the servant describes himself as being one who needs the Lord daily to teach him. The servant's hearing is an active hearing, is an attentive hearing, is a daily hearing. For some of us, the greatest act of turning to God is to confess that we have not been attentive to His Word. For, for some of us this morning, one of the ways we can turn to the Lord, and that turning can take place in, in simply surrendering to the Lord and say, Lord, I have not been attentive to Your Word. That we have not had ears to hear as those who are taught. We would prefer to be teachers rather than students. We prefer to speak more than to listen. Think about your relationships, even in your family. Think about your relationship with your spouse. Do you have an attitude 
of, of a student in your relationship with your spouse? Or do you have an attitude of a teacher? Are you open to understand and learn in, in your relationships with others? Such an attitude is important in all our relationships, but especially in our relationship to God. Well, you might ask, well, how do I know? How do I know if I really have a year that is open to learn from God? How do I know if that year is really open to hear? Well, we know that our ears are open to hear by the way we respond. We know that our ears are open to hear by the way we respond to what we hear. We know that our ears are open to hear when we respond in a way that is not rebellious against God's ways or when we respond in a way that pleases the Lord. The reason why the servant can sustain the weary with his word is because of his attentiveness to God is proved by his readiness to do what God says. And that is why he is a source and a solution for our weary souls. Look at the way Look at the way the servant describes his attentiveness to God's word. In verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear. And the very next thing he says, and I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. In verse 6, we find out that the case, that, 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 that the rebellion that the servant chose not to have was that he did not turn his back to those who strike him. In verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. For the servant, the path of hearing God's word and the path of not rebelling against the word of the Lord was the path of trusting in God and obeying his word even when the path was a path of suffering and shame and of disgrace. I wonder if we have this category of listening to the Lord, wanting to obey Him, even in the path He calls us to walk on, is a path of suffering, shame, and disgrace. Earlier in the service, we sang the song, Trust and Obey. It's a beautiful song. I appreciate so much of the lyrics of that song because it helps us see that trusting in God is manifested through our obedience to Him. You can't say you trust in God, but you choose to disobey Him. True faith in God produces in us an obedience to His ways. But there's one thing I would tweak in the lyrics of that song that I think that if they're not carefully considered, it can mislead us. And I would want to make sure we're not being misled. It's the it's a chorus of the song. It says, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that is true. But there are times, dear friends, when the path of trusting and obeying is the path of immediate suffering and discomfort and only ultimately of happiness in Jesus. And I just want us to be sure that we don't assume that trusting and obeying Jesus always leads us to immediate happiness in him because if our grid for what it means to trust and obey God is going to be whether or not it makes me immediately happy the servant would have never 
been in this category. The servant shows for us a path that sometimes trusting and obeying in the Lord, and obeying the Lord, trusting in the Lord and obeying Him is the path of suffering, of disgrace, and of shame. And yet the servant remains confident in the Lord. In verses 7 through 9, we see the servant's confidence. He says in verse 7, Behold, or I'm sorry, but the Lord God helps me. In verse 9, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Because the servant places his confidence in the Lord. In verse 8, he is ready to meet his adversary. He is not running away from suffering. He is running to it, ready, knowing that the Lord will be with him as he faces those circumstances. Friends, because the servant of the Lord has placed his entire confidence in the Lord, he was ready to face his enemies, knowing that it would be a path of shame, disgrace, and suffering, and ultimately, ultimately, it would be a path of his vindication and of his glory. Friends, the servant's personal testimony are a great encouragement for the hearts of all those who are discouraged. The servant shows us a path to God's vindication often takes us through suffering and shame and disgrace. But such experiences are not reasons to doubt God or to distrust His love for us. This text ends with a last point. Consider the choice before us. Consider before the, the, the choice before us. God speaks now. To his people in verse 10. And he addresses two scenarios. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Now God speaks and declares that he expects people to obey not only the Lord, but to obey the voice of his servant. Did you notice that? Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? The words that the servant has spoken to to uplift the weary. Now God says, who are going to be those to obey the words of the servant? Friends, make no mistake. God tells us that the voice of the servant must be obeyed. To say that we fear God but we don't obey the, the words of his servant makes no sense. But God calls those who walk in darkness, who have no light, who trust in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 10. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now here, here in this particular passage, a darkness is not referring to spiritual darkness. But rather, it refers to the darkness that we oftentimes feel in times of discouragement. In times of discouragement, we feel like there's, we don't know where to go. We don't think there's a door. We don't know there's a path moving forward. And it feels like, it feels like you can't see ahead. In times of such darkness, our immediate inclination is, can we lit a light? Can we get, figure out a way? Can we lit up some torches to figure out the way to move forward? And the options are, in times of darkness, Trust in the Lord. Or, lit up your own torches. Try to figure out the plan on your own. Rely on the light that you can give yourself. 
Verse 11 says, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. You can take that path. But listen to how this path ends. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Friends, it is better to walk in darkness, trusting the Lord, rather than rely and walk in the light, trusting your own torches. It is better to walk on a path where you can't see the next step ahead of you. And all you can do is trust in the Lord. Rather than go on a path of life where you figure out ways to light up the torches so you can see clearly, so you can plan it clearly, and yet just rely on yourself and not trust on the Lord. The Lord gives us a warning in this passage. He gives a warning to His discouraged people. As you are discouraged, you will be tempted to figure out Look at the torches you can lit up. And I don't know what they are for you. But here this, this chapter ends with this, with this sober reality. But this awesome warning as well. It is better to trust in the Lord in a dark path than try to figure some light for your path. Oh, friends, I pray that the Lord, as we consider our own discouragements, as we consider our own ways, that we would not be tempted to walk on a path that leads us to, re- to rely on ourselves. We all have come out, hopefully, from a path of, of the darkness of sin. Sometimes a path with the Lord may take us in seasons when we can't see what's ahead. Only trust in the Lord. Trust in what He has done. Trust in what He can do. Trust in what we know He will ultimately do. you pray with me? Father, we know that you are a God who cares for your people. We know that you are a God who desires for your people to rely not on themselves, not on what they can do for themselves, but, Lord, what you alone can do for us. Father, help us to be a people who turn away from our own sinful paths of of sinfulness, of rebellion, of self-reliance. Father, we pray that you would help us to live a life where we commend the faith, where we commend your power by the way we trust in you, by the way we wait for you, by the way we put our full confidence and reliance on you. Help us to be people who make known the glories and the power of your gospel by the way we live our lives waiting on you. In the name of Jesus we pray.